June 19, 1984, it would be another big day in court. But first things first. It was Bob Bulford's birthday, the big 4-0. It was my birthday. <laughs> and um, in the prosecutor's office, on someone's birthday, always had cake. So like, we knew we were going to be in court on day. So I don't know, my secretary said, well, we'll have the cake before you go to court. They needed that sugar high. One of the first witnesses to testify for the defense would be Chili Moe. Prosecutors thought the 1286 bar regular would be one of their star witnesses, someone who would say with 100% certainty that Samuel Herring was the agitated man who had ordered orange juice and then called a cab on March 20th. Prosecutors tracked Chilimo down a few weeks before trial. They had drinks with him in the 1286, and they again showed him a photo array that included a more recent photo of Samuel Herring. And again, no go. Chili Moe had not recognized Herring. He said he wasn't in there. He said that. He said he wasn't in there. Prosecutors were required to inform Herring's attorney that Chili Moe had not recognized Herring as the man in the bar. Defense attorney Robinson then met with Chili Moe and promptly put him on her witness list. She hoped Chili Moe would look at Herring and say, that is not the guy, and bolster her assertion that this was a case of mistaken identity, that someone else brutalized Phyllis Cottle, someone who resembled Herring. As Chili Moe walked into the courtroom on Bob Bulford's 40th birthday, Bulford tried to play it cool. He walks in the courtroom. He looks at me and kind of smiles. He takes another step. He looks at Herring and he does a double take. Oh, so you noticed this. So, he, so he was your first impression that when he walked in was, oh, crap? Yeah, my first impression was, I think he's identified him. Okay? Because he looks at him and I go, holy crap. He's either identified him or... Chili Mo either identified Herring or not. Chili Mo placed his hand on the Bible and took the stand. So he gets on the stand, and, and when he says, I think I see him there. Wait, what? If you look in his testimony in the direct, he says, I think I see him there. Wow. So Sandra Robinson now knows she has a problem. And she crossed right over. I, I read it again this morning. She, he says, I think I see him there. And it's funny, I lean over to Fred, I said, Fred, don't cross him. <laughs> you, you, you know, and, and Fred <laughs> looks at me. But then it was clear he had to clear it up, right? But but it was, I'm like, wow. And when he said that, I think I see him there, Fred goes, hey, happy birthday, Bob. <laughs> so, so um, and then Fred gets up and he basically, that's him, right? That's him. So, so Fred gets up and cross-examines him and says, do you see... He says, is that an absolute ID? He goes, yes, it's an absolute identity. It's him. It's like the kind of stuff that you'd see on Matlock or like on Law & Order. Emily Pelfrey is a former prosecutor. And as a prosecutor, I would always tell the younger prosecutors, like, that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. But it does. It does happen every, every once in a while. So there's always a little bit of a risk, regardless if you are the state's witness or defense witness, um, that someone's going to say something that you haven't heard before. You always kind of take a sigh. And then they get off the stand, you're like, okay, good. They said everything that we've talked about. But when it goes in your favor. Yes, when it goes in your favor, it's a glorious, oh my gosh, you are the best prosecutor ever. If it goes south, you are not prepared. You screwed up. Like, you know, you just, it's, it all just... <laughs> It's a flip of the coin, really. All saying in jest, of course. I mean, 
you want to prep the person as well as possible, but there are those times where where um, there are moments that you have not expected to occur in trial actually happen. Chilimo's testimony devastated the defense. Finally, someone pointed at Herring and said, that's him. Chilimo's ID also proved Herring lied. Herring told detectives he had never been in the 1286 bar, an establishment just blocks away from where Phyllis's car had been set on fire. Here's prosecuting attorney Fred Zook. That was a big one because that put him right where we were trying to put him. Because he was denying being there. He wasn't denying being in the hole. He was denying being the guy in that hole. Right. And, you know, a denial sometimes is not as good as a confession, but almost. And so if you can make the guy out be an absolutely a liar, you know, like, you know, police obviously try to get a confession. If not, they try to get provable inconsistencies. And um, that was a big deal. Happy birthday. That must have been a great day for you, Ken. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm Carol Costello. This is Blind Rage, Episode 11. Happy birthday. As Prosecutor Bulford inwardly celebrated one of the best birthday presents ever, Phyllis Cottle waited for what came next. Her alleged attacker, Samuel Herring, would soon take the stand. She had sensed evil as she walked into the courtroom evil that emanated from him. Again, she had done what she had to do to try to put him behind bars. She had told the jury and a TV audience vivid details of her ordeal. She had endured cross-examination and had maintained consistency in her testimony, and she had kept a promise to herself. Here's Drew, Phyllis's granddaughter. I don't remember her ever breaking down in the courtroom. She was like, I wasn't going to give him satisfaction. If she would have melted down, he would have got exactly what he wanted. And she was like, that was not going to happen. And Phyllis would not melt down now. She knew what would come next. Attorney Robinson had told prospective jurors what the defendant was prepared to do. Here's our voice of the court. Mr. Herring is not required to prove anything. He's not required to take the stand and tell you why he didn't do it or how he couldn't do it. However, in this case, he will. He's going to take the stand and he's going to tell you exactly where he was that day and what he was doing. Robinson informed the court her client had a criminal record but emphasized he had never been convicted of sex crimes or any crime against women. That was true. Herring's alleged history of domestic violence, in one instance so severe a girlfriend tried to commit suicide to escape him, that alleged history would not be admitted into testimony. It would not be heard by the jury. Prosecutors weren't worried. In fact, they were flummoxed by Robinson's decision to put Herring on the stand. I think it was stupid, but but I guess maybe not so stupid because, I mean, they were sinking. Prosecutors had already provided evidence that put a man who looked like Herring on West Exchange Street where the crime originated. A fascinating part of the story I will share later. Chili Moe definitively placed Herring in the 1286 bar as the man who ordered orange juice and called a cab. The cab driver testified he dropped a man off near the parole board after a pickup at the 1286. The parole officer told the court Herring refused to take his gym bag into the office. 
Detectives testified Herring wore undergarments with a drawstring and an open fly under his pants when he was arrested. And Herring told detectives he didn't drink alcohol because he aspired to be an Olympic boxer who just might own a pair of the distinctive gloves Phyllis had described. And the house, the rape house, it belonged to the Herring family. You could put it on a stand and maybe, maybe, just maybe, it could come out okay. You know, I said it was stupid, but I don't know how stupid it is. And what do you do? What do you do? I mean, I mean, by the time it came to that, I mean, now we have um, people identify him in a court, right? We have the fact that house was his family's house. More when we return. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com I never interviewed Sandra Robinson. I wish I could talk to her now, but she died in 2017 after a spectacular career. She would go on to become the first black female chief prosecutor in Akron and the first black female judge to serve at the common pleas level. But in 1984, she fought a bruising battle. Samuel Herring got up. He wore a dark suit, a white shirt, and a dark tie. He placed his hand on the Bible. Do you solemnly swear that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Herring was trim, good-looking, and earnest. He appeared rock-solid innocent. Casey Jordan, a criminologist, is not surprised. Even a guilty man can appear guilt-free. When they have a cold, stony presence in court, what is he thinking? I think he's just busy turning the gears in his head, playing a movie reel of innocence where he's not the perpetrator. And if you play that movie reel through your head over and over and over again, you will successfully integrate that new reality as the truth. So I think while he was sitting in court, he was probably not paying attention at all to anything that was being said. He was deep, deep, deep in his own thought process, again, saying, wasn't me, I didn't do it, I don't know what's wrong with this woman so that he could, for the rest of his life, stick to that party line 
insist on his innocence. And in many ways, it makes his ability to get through these many years in prison more tolerable. If you just take on the persona of an innocent man, then you're a martyr instead of a criminal. And in the interest of self-preservation, that's a much more comfortable identity to have. Robinson, have you ever been charged with any sex crimes or been convicted of sex crimes? Herring, no. Robinson, have you ever committed any kind of sex crime? Herring, no. Robinson, did you ever see Phyllis Cottle before? Herring, no. Herring told the court he woke up late on March 20th, watched a movie, made breakfast, and caught the bus to see his parole officer, Mr. Rhodes. As for why he left his gym bag in the lobby instead of taking it into Mr. Rhodes's office? Because I didn't want to carry it back there. I always leave it at the door. No way will anybody take it. I won't tell you all of what transpired in court. This episode would be hours long if I did that. But I need to tell you this part. Because after a time, Herring's testimony went... How should I put it? It went downhill, right into the gutter. I remember this part of his testimony like it was yesterday. Attorney Robinson asked Herring where he was on March 19th, the night before Phyllis was attacked. Herring told the court he was with a friend. Robinson, and were you up? You say, talking. Herring, yeah, you know. Robinson, was this a female friend? Herring, female. Robinson, did you do anything other than talk with her? Herring, yes. If you didn't catch that, if the jury didn't catch that, Robinson made sure everyone understood. Do you have any problems being involved with young ladies in the sense, do you have girlfriends? Herring, yes. Robinson. Do you have any sex-related type problems? Herring, no. In other words, Herring had sex with a woman the night before Phyllis's attack. Why would he need to kidnap a woman if he had a willing partner? Here's criminologist Casey Jordan. When a rapist says, why would I need to rape somebody? I have a girlfriend. That is a dead giveaway <laughs> that they are a power control rapist. No one engages in that hypothetical if they're truly factually innocent. But what it really indicates is that he sees rape as a crime of sex instead of a crime of violence, which of course it, it wasn't. It was a crime of violence where his penis was used as a weapon. And for the most part, when somebody says, um, I can't be a rapist, I get plenty of sex at home, that's the wrong answer because what you're doing is pretending it's a crime of sex and everyone knows it's a crime of violence and he had plenty of violence in his past. It was gross, and an education in real time for a young reporter. It starkly demonstrated why so many rape victims don't want to go through trial. And it taught me that a lot of people don't understand this particular crime, and that some defense attorneys would use that to their advantage. Rape is about power over a victim. Sometimes the perp gets a sexual charge out of it, sometimes not. 
It has little to do with what a woman looks like and everything to do with violent criminal tendencies. The question now, would Herring's testimony sway the jury? No way. Phyllis's testimony amazed everyone in town. But Fred Zook never, as they say, counted his chickens, even when it came to Phyllis's testimony. I think it can cut both ways. I mean, first of all, people can wonder how she can be that calm. Uh, but the other thing is she's, you know, very clinical about it. Boom, 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 this and that, the way she described things. Um, and gives them a, you know, the impression that she knows what she's talking about. As to, as to somebody else that is all over the park, or emotional, but then you suspect that maybe they're not recalling this right. Juries can be tricky. Sometimes the chemistry is not right. Get the wrong jury, you know, a leader that's going against you, you know, doesn't matter what your evidence is. In the end, there was no need to worry. The verdicts came rapid fire. Guilty of kidnapping. Guilty of rape. Guilty of aggravated robbery. Guilty of felonious sexual penetration. Guilty of felonious assault. Guilty of aggravated arson. Guilty of attempted murder. Guilty as charged. So when the guilty verdict was read, She was elated. <laughs> she was so happy. And it was weird because she wasn't happy for herself. She was happy for any future, what could have been his run-ins. She was just glad he was going to prison. Like, he's not going to harm anybody else. So she, I mean, she was happy for herself, but she was more happy he's not going to hurt anybody anymore. I wanted to call the podcast Badass. <laughs> <laughs> she was a badass. She was. Yeah. You didn't want to tangle with her. Samuel J. Herring was sentenced up to 290 years. He remains in prison and has never, in more than 35 years behind bars, admitted to brutalizing Phyllis. Next week, episode 12, The Fight Continues. He was obviously recently up for parole. We did some interviews and stuff, and um, they had shared it, obviously, on Facebook. And one of the comments on Facebook, it just sticks with me. Oh, that one, yeah. Um, he had made the comment on Facebook that was like, he did his time. Let him out. She's dead anyways. That's not how that works. That, that's not how that works. And that's why we continue to tell the story. Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage is a signature show of the Killer Podcast Network. If you enjoy this series, please subscribe and rate it on your favorite listening apps and discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. And if you want to discover more about this case, follow me on Instagram at Carol Costello. You'll find pictures of Phyllis, newspaper reports, crime scene photos, and more. Blind Rage is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Carol Costello. This episode was produced by Chris Iola and me, Carol Costello. Additional thanks to audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, contributor Nyja Galladay, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Original music is composed by Timothy Law Snyder. Our voice of the court is Douglas F. Bailey II. All of the information in this podcast came from my memories of the event. Phyllis Cottle, her family members and friends, former law enforcement, prosecutors, former and current journalists, police reports, and court documents. 
I've tried to tell this story factually to the best of my ability, but sometimes memory fails. It's been a long time, but my goal is simple. Phyllis was an amazing woman, and her story of courage should be shared. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 